Welcome to Post Pandemic. I'm Courtney Carthy. This episode, how will food production and distribution in the United Kingdom be after the pandemic? Professor Tom McMillan works in rural policy and strategy at the Royal Agricultural University. He knows more about how food is produced, supplied and consumed in the UK than most. Each episode, we look at a specific part of society, culture or the world and ask a guest to imagine what it might be like when this is all over. And as always, more information about guests and the topic, including the show, is available in the episode notes. I first came across you uh, because of a recent article, which we'll include a link in the show notes, that says 9% of Britons want life to return to normal after the lockdown is over, which is, you know, throws up the incredibly large percentage of 91 people uh, may not want things to return to how they were beforehand. Can you can you provide a little context for that? Because solitary figures often don't don't provide much insight. So with this piece of work, what we were trying to do really was get the measure of some of the things that there's a lot of chatter about and a lot of newspaper commentary and so on with every saying you know this is a this is a time when 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 uh, there's a mood for change and the future needs to be different in this way or that way or whatever it might be uh, and it was quite hard to get a, a feel for whether that was just the kind of view that you got on social media or and, and the kind of thing that newspaper columnists like to write about or whether it was really a, a big um, upswelling of uh, public opinion so we we put these polling questions out this particular one, uh, a question ran something like, what best describes your hopes for after the coronavirus outbreak is over? And the options were, I would like uh, everything to get back to how it was before. I would like to make some changes to my life, but I'd like the rest of the country to get back to how it was before. I'd like the country to learn from this crisis, but I'd like my life to get back to how it was before. Or I'd like uh, some changes to my life and I'd like um, the nation to learn from this crisis and or, or none of the above or don't know. And 85% opted for one of those, one of those, I want things to change question. More than half overall, so it's like 54% opted for that everything change. So I want to make changes to my life and I want the country to learn from this. And then, and then most of the others who wanted change went further, want the country to learn. So it's, it's not so much about, you know, spending more time with the family and, and that sort of thing. It feels more political than that as an overall thing. And as you, as, as you said, just 9% saying that they wanted everything to go back to how it was before. And I, I was super surprised by, by how, uh, how big that result was um, as, a, as a kind of vote for change. Now, there'll be a huge number of different things um, in the mix there. There'll probably be, uh, you know, some general kind of Brexit type, um, you know, vote for, vote for change um, attitudes in there. There'll be stuff relating to climate and environmental issues and, and so on. There'll be people thinking about, um, about uh, their personal circumstances and, you know, income insecurity and, and, and a huge number of different things, which we didn't unpack in this particular Pull, but we're hoping to get into a bit more in in some of our, our further work. But just overall, it was um, it was pretty mind blowing to get that 
um, to that, that result back. Yeah, the, the, surely the data is compelling to conduct another survey pretty soon, I'd say. Yeah, and um, uh, we, we're, we're hoping to do some more in a, in a couple of weeks' time. And where we'll probably go is into some of the questions around attitudes to the role of government and government intervention, both in you know in our in our own lives, but also in business, and that that reflects in in this piece of work our interest, particularly in in food and um, and the debates around you know how much of what we eat is our choice, how much is it affected by marketing, and what what people working in food call the food environment. So you know just the context we walk out into every day, and where we buy our food, and and what's available around us. And, and how much is it government's place to um, to try and shape that for public health or for the environment or for food security or whatever it might be? And it uh, it feels like there's some recalibration potentially going on around around that in terms of where where people expect government to act and and where they expect companies to do things and where they expect to to make choices. And so we want to delve into that aspect of it in particular rather than rather than necessarily. Um, ourselves getting more into into what is it um, more generally people are wanting to see change out there when this is um, when this whatever it is this is all um, overall starts to um, starts to um, kind of move into a subsequent phase. Mm. Um, just a couple of other numbers from the survey: sixty one percent of people are spending less money, and fifty one percent noticed cleaner air outdoors. But one in particular, if you can unpack it a little bit, was Twenty-seven percent think that there is more wildlife. Uh, do you know what sort of wildlife? And I mean, we've seen. I think in Thailand there were hungry monkeys that had, you know, come from a temple into the town to, you know, find food. I think in uh, Northern Europe there's been deer that have been spotted in city streets. Is there anything like that happening in in England? Yeah, there's plenty of plenty of stories of. Uh, of various wildlife making appearances where they normally wouldn't be expected, and, and with this with this bit of the result, and it's hard to untangle. Like with any poll, you always get get um uh, you always a hostage to the questions you ask in a way. And with this, it's springtime here as well, so you know maybe if you're talking bird song, there might be a bit more of it about anyway. Um, and and also people will be playing back. Perhaps some of the things that we're reading about and, and seeing on social media and, and and so on as well, which will be some will be UK, some of them will be international trends. But I think it it you know the clean the cleaner air and the experience of cleaner air that you mentioned of 51 percent saying they'd noticed cleaner air that um, that I think feels feels very striking. The wildlife one is is perhaps harder to disentangle, but again it it corroborates a little bit the kind of things you're hearing of you know, certainly around here. I haven't, I haven't, um, uh, I haven't witnessed this myself, but people are seeing it, saying you're seeing, you know, moles popping up um, uh, where normally you just see the mole hills and never ever see a mole. And apparently, um, occasionally, if you walk out at the right time, you might actually see a mole, which is quite an unusual sight. So, you know, just there's things like that that you're hearing, and um, and people said they were noticing more wildlife in in the uh, in the pole, and we looked a little bit at we obviously. It's a, it a big poll. It was over four thousand people, so we were able to cut it this way and that by region and by um, you know by population segment and by um, uh, income group and by gender and by age 
but also by rural and urban. And for a lot of results, there weren't huge rural urban differences. For this one, as you might expect, it was people in the countryside a little bit more um, saying they noticed more wildlife, but actually it's still a pretty strong result in the town as well. So like I say, with, with any of these questions, you're limited by the questions you ask in the first place in terms of the detail you get back. So um, so exactly what wildlife people are seeing, we, we, we don't yet know. Question one, what will be different about food in the UK after the pandemic? So one thing that is pretty certainly going to be different is eating out of the home. So restaurants and takeaways and uh, and uh, sandwich shops and all that sort of thing. It's It's been one of the most dramatic, kind of direct and immediate effects of lockdown um on on food supplies so a lot of the things that are going on within uh, within food supply here in the uk to do with what's available and what's not available and so on a lot of that not all of it by any means um but a lot of it is a knock-on effect of over the space of a few days this part of the food sector which accounts for about I think it's about half of um, of food by value and about I think about a quarter of it by volume, basically turning off, and people who supplied into restaurants and and takeaways and sandwich shops and so on having to either pivot really quickly to finding somewhere else to sell their produce or having to um, to throw it away for a certain period until they'd found that market or going bust in some cases and. Yeah, so there's huge knock-on effects just simply from that one thing of people can't go and eat out right now and they can't go to the pub and they can't um, uh, go, they, they can get a food delivery, um, but that's about it. And that's just had massive, massive knock-on effects. And I think that will that will linger because the, the, the hole that it's put that part of the food industry into is quite a deep one. Um, some... Some businesses may be able to last it out and there's um, furloughing schemes. So, you know, people are able to employ um, their staff and get some of that money paid for by government. And so some can hang on in there, but some are, some are struggling already after a number of weeks only. Uh, and this may go on for quite a long time. And then, you know, there's knock-on effects from uh, other people up the chain not paying their bills and uh, and that affecting um, suppliers and so on. So it's a, it's a really big... Um, big dent in something that has been a uh, obviously a, a pretty persistent feature of life for a very long time, but also a growing trend in terms of you know every year people eating more out of the home rather than less out of home, and suddenly that's basically switched off, and that will that will stay. And there will be it's one of those areas where even when uh, whenever it is that we come out of lockdown we like to have quite a long hangover because people will still probably be working more from home for a period and um, and therefore eating less, you know, less, less kind of sandwich lunches from a sandwich shop, whatever it might be. We'll probably have a lot less cash kicking around in terms of really spending power. And so again, um, less money for eating out. And of those businesses that have gone bust, a lot of them won't have the, the capital to start back up again and you know who would lend to them and likewise in terms of banks and so on who would lend to people who've never done never run a restaurant before or whatever so we'd like to see a really long um 
long hangover from this dent in um, in restaurants and eating out. And it's and it's interesting as a change, partly because of because of how big it is and um, and how how much we like to notice it on the high street and and the knock-on effects that it has on the rest of the chain and how much it's caused you know other people to have to rejig what they do but also it's big because it's one of the few trends around food where something that was going one way has done a complete u-turn and headed back the other way most of the other things we're seeing are accentuating and accelerating stuff that was happening already and so you're seeing some consolidation so you know big big businesses getting bigger and, and more powerful um even as we're seeing the importance of kind of diversity in, in our food supply we're seeing that that consolidation that was already going on accentuated and accelerated we're seeing it around food inequalities and people going hungry so again underlying issues of food insecurity massively ramped up um so we were talking about our polling a moment ago that was that was kind of one half of a poll done jointly with a charity called the Food Foundation. Their poll focused on food vulnerability and it found that 3 million people in the UK have been going hungry in the past couple of weeks since lockdown, which is a massive increase in what you normally find in a year here in the UK. So that's from a number of factors, but largely through loss of income. And uh, and then in some cases, people being able to get to food shops, but they're not being food there, um, but mostly mostly income related. Um, and so, but again, that's an underlying, that's not a U-turn, that's a, that's an uptick in something that was already there. Um, likewise, trend towards online, obviously that was already going on and you've, you've had, you know, that, that accelerate, um, and, 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 and grow and, um, and then, and then sort of slightly, slightly at odds with some of those, some of those trends around consolidation and the move to online and so on, you've also got a bit of a resurgence around, um, you know, some local and artisanal suppliers have have kind of quickly done what they might have assumed they'd do over years, which is find directly to market and, and, you know, move online or whatever it might be themselves. Um, and you've got uh, community food initiatives also stepping up and the growth of those. And, and those things, again, were kind of happening anyway and have been accelerated or, uh, or pushed to the fore and so on. Um, likewise, actually, automation. So... There's concern about uh, labour shortages for for fruit and veg picking as the season starts to pick up here in later in the spring and into the summer. And again, there's already the conversations that were happening about labour shortages post Brexit, um, which were leading people to think about increased automation and in in harvest and so on. Again, those are getting a, an extra boost, and people are thinking about how to fast track stuff that that might have happened over years to try and happen over months instead so it's uh the reason i pick out the restaurant thing is the the biggest difference around food here like i said it's partly because it will be really noticeable um and something that affects a very large number of people because so many so many folk rely some way or other um on uh, eating food at home um but also because of this fact that it's it's one of the few things which has completely changed direction instead of just getting bigger quicker um, than was happening already. Like for people that are producing the food, you know, you mentioned that 
some of those practices like automation have just sort of increased. I've seen reports of milk having to be dumped because, you know, consumption has dropped. I imagine there's probably a lot less food waste uh, now because people are cooking in the home a lot more. Is the, is the, uh, the volume of food in the UK uh, in the supply, you know, do you see that growing or contracting after the pandemic? Yes, right. I think it's really hard to know what will happen to to demand um, and to uh, the supply of food after the pandemic. Partly because it's really hard to quite get to grips with what's going on right now um, and uh, and what we'd be comparing it with anyway. Because I think I think we'll see quite a lot of shift over the over the coming months as well so it depends whether we're comparing kind of after with before or after with with during so the the mix of things going on you mentioned dairy farmers um, you know putting putting milk down the drain and that that seems to be in in significant part about this kind of switch in demand so less about demand dropping but just about it shifting from one part of the market to another and and the supply chain struggling as yet but on its way to catching up and in the meantime the the um there's a mismatch between the people who are producing it and their routes to market and where the where the demand is and who's processing it and so on so there's a a lot of a lot of rejigging going on and and during that period we're seeing more supply chain waste um in some areas than would normally be the case in in the UK in general. The um, the picture is normally that you've got a, a relatively tight food supply chain when it comes to food waste, but um, a bit more waste in the home. So you, so one might imagine that if we're cooking more in the home, we might actually see an increase in food waste rather than a decrease. Um, at the same time, in, in the polling we did, people were saying that they were throwing away less, away less food. But obviously, there's a huge kind of social pressure not to throw away food. So that's the kind of way people answer that question anyway, in any circumstance. There's going to be some more research done by others, including, um, uh, I understand it, some of the sort of specialist organisations that focus on food waste, that will look much more into what exactly is happening on that count, both in the supply chain, but also what people are doing at home. When it comes to afterwards... What then happens will depend partly on on the context we're in. So, like I mentioned, if one of the big effects is that we're eating more at home in the longer run as well, partly because a lot of the places we might have eaten out aren't are shut, don't exist anymore, um, and maybe we're working more at home and so on, then, then that will have a knock-on effect on demand. Um, but exactly how that plays through is, is hard to tell. It, it might not lead to overall volumes being down, but it might lead to shifts between, you know, meat and, meat and veg and staples and so on, um, which we're already seeing some effects. But again, it's quite hard to tease out why why those things are happening. So abattoirs are reporting um, uh, sales being down and so on, but exactly what's what's causing what and where the where the bottlenecks are and how much it's demand driven versus um, versus supply constraints playing through. It's, it's just hard to know right now. Um, so yeah, there may be fewer places to be diet that might have a knock-on effect, um, but uh, but yeah, effects on food waste really hard to know. Effects on stockpiling, you know, people are people are keeping more in stock at the moment. How long will that carry on afterwards, and how does that play through 
in the medium term into food waste. So even stuff that's got a long shelf life sometimes runs out of date. Um, so if, if people are doing more kind of store cupboard stocking, will that in the in the in the medium term see you know see increased food waste? Will people get bored of doing that? Um, you know, it's not something people here have been particularly used to doing in general. But uh, you know, will the fashion stick? Or will it uh, will it be gone as soon as as soon as it can be? You know, it's just really hard to know. Question two: What do you think will become obsolete as a result of the pandemic? The notion that self sufficiency is irrelevant to how secure our food supply is, and and I mean that as a you know as a country or a region that we don't need to grow much of our own food in order to feed ourselves. We can always import it. And it's a it's an idea that's dominated policy around food and farming in the UK for a really long time, especially in England. And it's reflected in, you know, previously in there being not very much interest in, for example, how much fruit and veg we grow here, as long as we're able to buy it from somewhere. Um, it occasionally rears its head and causes a bit of a scandal, including earlier this year, where, um, where you know, an an economist or um, a government official will say something about this and, and people will express you know outrage at the idea and, and and say well surely we need to produce our own food here and so on but it's, a, it's an idea that's really deeply entrenched been really deeply entrenched in policy and and recently has gone hand in hand with a real emphasis on a shift in farming policy from from productivity towards environmental um, environmental stewardship and environmental public goods um, is, is the language that's used so that's been a really powerful idea. Um, it's an idea which, you know, there's some there's some sense to it. Obviously, if you take it to extremes and you go, we don't need to grow anything, then it, then it's then it's a bit absurd. Likewise, if you take it to the other extreme and you say we have to grow everything, then it's then it's also pretty absurd. But in 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 English policy, I'd say the pendulum has has been swung to the idea that self sufficiency doesn't matter that much um, for really quite a long time, and I think we're going to see that pendulum swing the other way as a result of this. Um, so that idea will become obsolete for a period. Uh, I, I think there's um, there's obviously pretty hard constraints on how far the practicalities change. So I think we'll still rely pretty heavily on food trade and food imports here. Um, and we've got a really skeletal local food supply infrastructure. So I think the risk of kind of overcorrecting in terms of boosting that too much or kind of over relying on local and regional food supply and kind of, you know, the, the risks associated with relying too heavily on national self-sufficiency and, and, and things from a food security point of view. I think they're really low risks. I think we're so far from, from that at the moment here. I think we're going to shift, see a shift in em- emphasis towards more UK production. I don't think that's a necessarily that, that rational, a response to exactly what we're seeing happen here um, in reality we've seen you know not that much pressure on imports yet uh, we've seen kind of big food retail change really quickly in the circumstances and there's been lots of strain like I mentioned with three million people going hungry but that's largely driven by loss of income and kind of place-based logistical gaps rather than the the fact we've got a pretty globalized food supply chain but i think nevertheless we're going to see a um kind of resurgence of the idea that 
food production is important and the idea that you know just having a uh, looking to the world for our food supply which has been the the sort of gist of our policy narrative the idea that that's that's uh, an idea that it's time has passed in a way so um so i think that's that's what i see being coming obsolete and i think we and it's an area we need to be a bit cautious because you know overall what we're really looking for i guess is a resilient food system and this shock is it's a weird shock. I'm sure all shocks are weird shocks, but it's, you know, the effect of social distancing is really peculiar on, on food supply, including all that stuff about restaurants needing out of home, but also on how farming and food pack, pack plants and so on work. It's just a very odd thing. It's not like a, uh, the effect of a natural disaster or the effect of, um, of climate change on crop production or whatever it might be. So all shocks, to food supply are different and we shouldn't model our, our our sort of future resilience on one particular example like this but i think overall that idea that we can just trade our way out of trouble on food will have um will have been rendered uh, rendered obsolete by um, by this experience even if not um even if not by uh, a really strong sort of analysis of what this experience should teach us Question three: What will be different in your daily life? So, I mean, we've we've touched on this a little bit already, and I think it, you know some some of the things are are hangovers from what we're experiencing now, and not hangovers because we necessarily want them to be, uh, but just hangovers because the context has changed outside our front doors <laughs> while we've been sat inside, and so. Eating more at home is part of that. So whether or not we like it, there'll be just less opportunity and less less um, less cash to do otherwise. Um, but especially, if, for example, in my case, if I'm uh, if I'm working more at home in future anyway, just because of because of this and the, the effect it has on our working lives. And again, that will will mean that I and others eat more at home probably as well as a consequence. And and it sounds really trivial to flag that as something that might be different in our daily lives, but given what a massive phenomenon the shift to eating out has been within within food in Britain over the past few decades, actually to to have a really substantial drop in that over such a short period and for that to linger and still be different afterwards, I think is um, is potentially quite a big deal and has all those knock-on effects for other areas like we touched on on waste and I think like I say the jury's out on how that's actually changing, but certainly there's a there's a an alertness to food waste as an issue, perhaps that the um, the has only been um, uh, more sporadically perhaps in the past, um, and and that idea of keeping more stocks, and I think that will be a bit different as well for a period. Um, the value of food, how people value food and food production and the people involved in food production i think that will change so in our polling we found that 40 percent of people were saying they, that that this experience had changed how they valued food and other essentials now again it's one of those things one could unpack further um, i expect but it's an assumption that uh, not very many of those people are valuing food less than they were before i think mostly they're valuing food more, but the the question we asked was just whether it changed, and uh, and I think that will 
that will probably continue at least for a period. And then, and then I think overall the, I guess this, this hunger for change that we saw in the survey as well will, will affect, um, people's daily lives, including, including my own. I think there'll be a degree of kind of impatience around, um, around some of the, the, the policies that shape our post-lockdown world and a, uh, and that impatience might sort of translate politically as well, but how far that, how far that plays through and with what effects is hard to tell us yet. And question four, what positives do you see coming from the pandemic? I mean, you mentioned a couple before. Um, I think people might be enjoying cooking at home, but in the, the change to, you know, food supply and the agricultural industry in the UK, where are the, the things that you like? We've been perhaps, you know, waiting for this to change or this has been slowly changing for a while for the better. Now it's accelerated or, um, we've got this opportunity to make a specific change uh, now that this has happened that we know will result in, you know, X and Y being improved. Is there something like that that you've, that you can point to? So there's quite a few different potential positives. I think we're learning quite a lot about how things could work better around, around food and that that applies probably more I'm thinking to where government plays into the mix and the role of the government has as a regulator um, and also as a kind of coordinator of effort and where it's better for government to let um, to let businesses and charities and other communities and others get on with things but also um, uh, where um, sorry I lost my thread there um so I think I think we're yes, yeah, so I think um some some of the positives I think we're learning a lot about the role of government that can help make sure that where government intervenes around food in the future it's to better effect than it has been. So it can it can be more effective. And that applies both to things that are directly to do with food production and, and supply, but also around benefits and welfare and so on. So we're, we're learning through sort of stress testing at the moment. We're learning quite a lot about where the gaps are and what could be done better and where the levers might be to, um, to, to, to improve food security and environmental performance and health and so on. And that's a positive in a way, that learning, as long as, as, long as it's acted on. And given part of, the, part of the background context is we, in... England especially have been focused on a new national food strategy that's just been um, been put together uh, is sort of part way through the process when this all happened and that team has been sort of dragged off into some of the emergency response work but in effect it, it's a moment where you know if there was ever a time when we've got the ingredients to make subsequently a really good national food strategy we're gathering some of those ingredients now so so I guess that's one um one potential positive i think it also shows that we can achieve staggering social change at the drop of a hat and so you could say it's a a kind of belated rehearsal for the climate crisis and again quite how that plays through and whether we're 
we're so sick of um, of making big changes to our lives that it becomes even harder to to make them around food when it comes to climate change and, and public health and so on after this or whether we're warmed up and now we kind of know how to do it and we can do that stuff quickly is you know the jury's out but that could be a positive again that that it that things that felt really hard and really impossible now feel much more achievable when it comes to the sustainability and, and climate impact of our food production um i also think that there are possible side benefits of of this dent in eating out the home um so like i said before it's the background trend has been towards eating out more and that is uh, has been associated with um in some cases sort of poorer poorer public health outcomes and has been part of the mix of things contributing to obesity now it's not it's not like if you eat out it's always unhealthy but it's overall it's um it's, it's sort of part of our food environment where it's quite hard to um, to make sure we're eating healthily and so on. So it's been part of that mix. So if there's less of it going on, maybe that's an opportunity from a public health point of view. Again, it, it, it comes at a cost because people enjoy eating out and also it's a big source of livelihood for people too. So um, so it's not like that's entirely upside by any means, but it might be a, a potential health silver lining there. And then I think there's also the possibility that attitudes to how far government can intervene in our lives and particularly in business nationally and locally that they're being recalibrated and again like around climate change and around obesity and areas where a deregulatory instinct here in the UK has held back what might seem like you know potentially sensible or obvious actions on public health and environment those things those barriers might melt away a little bit in in light of the types of things that people have regarded as necessary and acceptable to deal with um, with the pandemic, so I think we may see that recalibration around what it's what it's sensible for government to do in the public interest, um, and uh, and that could possibly be a positive. And then finally, I guess around community. So we found in in our polling that forty percent of people were saying they felt a stronger sense of local community and uh, a smaller number were saying that for the very first time they'd shared something with a neighbour and so on. And I think that's 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 a positive. Again, it's a mixed bag. It's not the same everywhere by any means, but um, but it's certainly something that people feel they're experiencing on quite a large scale and hopefully will have some legacy. All the negatives aside, that seems to be a, a good bunch of positives that are coming from this yeah, yeah i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are you personally finding the community site aspect of of this has improved for you you know have you been going to your neighbors next door or taking food over or anything like that um so so we we had a little stint of self-isolation before the lockdown started because um because uh, uh, my kids had raised temperatures and the advice was we had to self-isolate 14 days and even back then when it was still kind of quite early days here we were um we were kind of amply supported by by neighbors going to the shops for us and doing all sorts of amazing things so yeah it felt um it already felt quite strong then and then there's been 
in in the small town I live in called Stroud, which is in in Gloucestershire, which is where um, Extinction Rebellion, one of the places it started. Um, so it kind of got on the map last year from that. There's a really strong sense of community anyway, and um, there's been pretty kind of rigorous dividing up of the town to make sure everywhere's covered and there's WhatsApp groups everywhere and so on. So it's pretty kind of, uh, there's been some um, pretty rapid organization emerging that seems to be providing some some great support for people who really need it so and and in a really in a really sort of detailed and 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 uh way that is that where, where people have you know kind of deep knowledge of who's on the street and who needs what and so on not not in a kind of helicopter view uh statistical analysis of where the areas of need might be it's that kind of um that kind of really granular um understanding of what's going on that you only really get from uh, from grassroots organizations so yeah seeing uh, seeing a lot of that and like i say personally in that period where we were self-isolating we certainly felt that happening already right and um, question five how do you think you'll describe the pandemic to somebody in the future that didn't experience it i find this question quite hard because i know how i describe it but i think people's experiences are varying so hugely and so far i've been really lucky so i haven't lost any friends and relatives uh, i'm i'm not knowingly in a high risk group for any reason um and i've still got my job and i can work from home and i've got a bit of outdoor space and and like i said a, you know lucky to live in a really active community where there's a lot of community support so for now i'd describe it as a time when like many others you know, I've been prompted to rethink what I care about. And, and that's, that's, that for me is the overwhelming experience of it at the moment. Now, depending what happens, that, that, that experience might in turn be overwhelmed by other things. So, um, so, you know, who knows how, how I'll describe it in the future to someone who didn't experience it. But right now, that's how I think I'd describe it as this time when we were forced to rethink. But yeah, uh, it could it could unfold in different ways for me as well, and um, and that might massively change my perspective on it because I've been you know very lucky and and uh, and fortunate to be in quite a privileged position through it. Right. If you were to write a, a book, film, or TV series <laughs> about the pandemic, um, maybe in relation you know, in the context of you know changing food supply, um, what do you think you'd call it and why? It's not so much to do with food, but I think I'd call it jolt or something like that because. Because it's shaking us and our assumptions, and you know it's a bit of an earthquake, and there's this question of how the landscape will change and what will sort of judder back into place where it was before. So yeah, I think of it as a as a jolt, and that applies to food, but it applies to so much else as well. Last question, question seven: What do you think we should be paying attention to now that will affect life after the pandemic? So it could be a statistic, an action. Uh, policy or um, some sort of social change that you think will be yeah, instrumental or indicative of um, of life when coronavirus has passed, hopefully? I think there's tons of stuff people are paying attention to already that's massively important, including obviously what the, what the economic legacy will be, which will have big effects for food as well, where I think there might be other things worth paying attention to that maybe aren't getting quite that 
um, that focus at the moment. I think attitudes to to change, like we discussed, but also to government intervention. I think that's really interesting, and how far we're seeing a, a sort of shift in where the centre of politics is, and that matters hugely for food because vast proportions of the policy debate around food over the past decade or more have been about what's it okay to government for government to do when it comes to our food is it okay for policy to affect over time the kinds of things we eat in a way to make us healthier and to help tackle climate change or is that not okay and i think these this broader kind of potential shift or reset in where where the middle kind of balance seems to lie will have knock-on effects of food. So I think that's one to pay attention to. And then perhaps also attitudes to food and to key workers. Um, so to, you know, to people producing food, both as farmers, but also, you know, people working in processing and packing plants in logistics and so on as key workers. And for a period at least, them uh, them being celebrated and valued by the nation and i think the interesting thing to watch there is how far that gets reflected in any improvement in their circumstances and whether any of that uh, whether any of that lasts or whether it's a flash in the pan it's a moment when they've got a a, a, um, a bit of appreciation but that appreciation doesn't translate into any more money or any better job security or any other things that might actually um, help ensure that um, that they're they're substantially valued and the work that they're doing is is um, is appropriately rewarded. So I think that's another one to watch because it might go one way or the other. Great, Professor Tom McMillan. Thanks so much for your time on this episode. And well, it's going to be fascinating to watch what you know how this all plays out are you just out of interest are you sort of working around the clock at the moment trying to you know gather up as much data as you can to you know assess or maybe sort of like when you get some time later on to to look back on and reflect on we're certainly trying to harness data now that we think we'll want later that we'll want with hindsight because there'll be a load of a load of data that will be available after the event by default. And that includes the kind of monitoring that businesses will do, big businesses will do within the food supply of, you know, how much food they shifted and how many people they fed and that sort of thing. But there'll be other stuff we'll want after the event that won't be available with hindsight. Um, so unless we gather it now, and that will include these snapshots of what we're all thinking and feeling and doing at the moment, which we'll probably struggle to remember actually in even a few months time, and certainly will look a bit weak relative to hard numbers that otherwise people might be providing about what was going on. So I think we're keen to to try and fill some of those gaps that might otherwise be evident in the data and, and research that's available after the event. And that, that also applies to some of those smaller, perhaps more marginal things going on that are never less important in food supply, including community food um, initiatives and you know, we saw in our survey, we saw 6% of people, something like 3 million people saying they ordered food direct from a farm or 
from a vegetable box for the very first time, which 6% doesn't sound like a huge number of people, but relative to the kind of prior market size is pretty massive. So, you know, there's things going on like that that are kind of at the margins, but also potentially quite important that I think will otherwise get missed if we don't, um, if we don't get data on now. I'd be lying if I said I was working around the clock to do that. I think relative to some of my some of my um, colleagues working on policy who are sort of in the thick of the emergency response who are working around the clock, um, I'm uh, I'm you know balancing um, doing some of this and um, looking after the kids a bit and doing all the other things that that generally people are um, often trying to trying to balance around this time. So I'd, yeah, I'd be um, I'd be pulling a leg if I said I was working around the clock to this stuff, but hopefully, hopefully doing enough to make sure that we've um, we've got this kind of data when we need it in due course. Professor Tom McMillan works in rural policy and strategy at the Royal Agricultural University in England, and also the research leader in YouGov poll finding only 9% of Britons want life to return to normal. You can get a link to the story and that poll, or the polling, in the episode notes. Just check it out. Check those out where you're listening to this now. If you're enjoying post-pandemic, please leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and do tell a friend about the show. More information as well at postpandemic.com. Dot X, y, Z. If you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest, please do so. Get in touch. Hello at postpandemic.xyz. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Post-Pandemic is hosted by me, Courtney Carthy. Production is by Neely Media. Cover artwork by Studio Baker. And our theme music was created by Alex Shulgin.